Some of us were told that the most important thing for any Christian or any church is to give God glory. But I'm beginning to suspect that we've gotten the whole idea of glory upside down. Hey friends, I'm Mark Allen Shelsky, and this is The Apprenticeship Way, a podcast about spiritual growth following the way of Jesus. This is episode 22, Upside Down Glory. Welcome to season two. I'm late to the idea that podcasts should have seasons. It never occurred to me, and then I learned the hard way. A season allows for time to rest and recover and renew and come back with strong ideas in a new direction. So, seasons it is. One of the consequences of not thinking in seasons is that I ended the last season abruptly, right in the middle of a series. I didn't mean to. It's just how the timing worked out for our summer vacation and our kids getting out of school. And so there I was, right in the middle of a series, unpacking the anchor prayer for you. This is a spiritual practice that has deeply impacted me. I wanted to share it with you, and I started laying it out back in episode 19, but then summer came and I never finished it. I've got three more episodes to wrap that whole teaching up, and I'm really excited to share them with you. But first, before we do that, there are two other things I want to do. The next episode I'm going to share is an interview that I did with a friend of mine, Mary DeMuth, who just recently released a book that I consider to be an urgent and important book about the church's response to sexual abuse. It's a crucial topic we have to talk about. So that's the next episode. But today, to kick off season two, I wanted to share with you something I have realized that has completely reframed my experience as a follower of Jesus, and it has to do with how we think about God's glory. Now, before we get started with the thoughts for today, I've got two upcoming things I want you to know about. The first is for anyone wanting to grow spiritually, which is you, and the second is just for writers. First, in a couple of weeks, I'm gonna be doing a live online spiritual growth workshop. It's the first of these I've ever done. It's gonna be a 45-minute session called How to Grow Spiritually in the Middle of a Very Stressful and Busy Life. Now you're listening to this podcast because you want a deeper spiritual life. So this is right up your alley. And so there's going to be 35 minutes of teaching that covers one mindset that is crucial for spiritual growth. I don't believe you can grow without this. And two practices, simple practices, that can help you build that mindset into your life. And then at the end, in the last few minutes, I'll share three resources for growth. A recommendation for one of the best books I have read recently about spiritual growth. It's not something I wrote. I wish I did a free downloadable PDF with a fantastic exercise to help you center gratitude in your life. That's free for anyone who comes to the workshop and a 10 week opportunity for learning how to live more conscious of God's presence. So if that sounds interesting to you, it's free and it will be live. I'm going to be doing it twice, Tuesday, October 8th at 11 a.m. Pacific Standard and Thursday, October 10th at 2 p.m. Pacific Standard. There's a link in the notes for more information and to register so you can reserve your spot. It's free and get the link to join in when the workshop goes live. So check that out. The second thing that's coming up is happening at the end of October. I'm hosting a weekend retreat just for writers. It's called the Writer's Advance because we are going to advance our projects. This isn't a a sit and take notes while experts talk kind of retreat. This is a writing retreat. We're going to eat good food in a comfortable, beautiful inn in Long Beach, Washington. We're going to encourage and support each other. And we're going to put in hours towards moving our word count forward. 
You'll be there if you come with a small group of other focused writers doing the same thing. There's a maximum of 12 participants. There'll be optional sessions for feedback if that's helpful, and you will get a lot done. So come write the next three chapters of your book or finish your outline or get that proposal written. There's only four spots left. So if you're a writer and you wanna move a project forward that you have, hit the link, see the details, reserve your space. That's it. When I was growing up as a young Christian, I learned the most important thing was God's glory. We gave glory to God by obeying, doing the right things, avoiding the wrong ones, you know, eating right, worshiping on the right day, not having sex before marriage. We gave God glory by agreeing with the right list of doctrines. It was our list of what was true about the universe. We gave glory to God by convincing other people to do all of this too, convincing them to cross the line so that they could obey and agree. By this, everyone would know that we were God's people. This is what would give God glory. At least, that's what we thought. Well, I've been feeling itchy in my Christianity lately, not feeling at home. Feeling like my favorite jeans just don't fit me anymore. Do you know what I mean? That itchy feeling has been getting stronger because more and more voices are declaring exactly what it is that gives God glory. Lots of voices, clear, loud voices, full of certainty. Good churches, they say. Don't let women preach. No, teach men how to be more manly men, strong men, in control, kind, but in charge. Good churches, they say, don't accommodate on matters of gender or sexuality or marriage and who's allowed to love who. Be kind, they say, but also be clear. There is no room at this table for people who are attracted to the same sex or who are not at home in their own bodies or who are finding themselves somehow outside the cultural norms of what it means to be a man or a woman. Be kind, sure, but don't compromise. Good churches, they say, don't get tangled up in culture. Stick to the business of souls. Focus on eternity. Get people to say the prayer. Remind them to obey and believe. And whatever you do, whatever you do, don't cause division. Stay out of conversations like hashtag Black Lives Matter or hashtag Me Too. If you're not going to support the president, then don't talk about him. Things like immigration and the border and climate change or election reform or police brutality or healthcare, these are just not the business of the church. Good churches, they say, read the Bible and obey it. They don't spend time talking about translation or interpretation or historical context. They certainly don't talk about the difficulties in the text or that there might be moral development across the pages or that some passages might be more important or maybe even more inspired than others. Good churches, they say, are full of certainty and conviction. By this, they say, Everyone will know that we are God's people, and that gives God glory. I've been feeling the weight of these voices lately, like a premonition of rejection. I'm becoming more and more clear that the things we thought give God glory really only exist to make us feel strong and right. And maybe a lot of what we say is about God's glory is really just about us. I've been feeling itchy because I think... We've gotten God's glory upside down. Let me tell you what I mean. 1 John 4, 8. God is love. John 10, verse 30. Jesus said, I and the Father are one. John chapter 1, verse 14. 
and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. Glory is of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Colossians chapter 2, verse 9, For in Him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. Take those verses together, and this is what you get. Jesus is one with God. And that means, for us, He is the same as God. And that means Jesus is God's love. And that means Jesus is God's love embodied in flesh and bone and time and culture. Jesus said in, in John 14, 9, Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Now that means we have a way to see what has always been invisible, what has always seemed nebulous or unknowable, who God is and what God is like and how God relates to people. That's all now clear. And this means we now have a way to hear from God, a way that isn't cold like carved stone or unaccommodating like a rules and regulations manual or distant like an ancient tradition with details lost in the fog of history. Our early church elders, our forebearers, they put it like this, Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 to 2, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature, and He upholds the universe by His word of power. Do you hear that? The radiance of God's glory, the exact imprint of His nature. See, the glory of something is when its essential nature is revealed. That's what Jesus did. Jesus showed us God's essential nature. That's what gives God glory. And that takes us back to where we started, 1 John 4, 8. God is love. Now that well-known line is really the end of the sentence. It's the punchline, really. The setup goes like this. The one who does not love does not know God because God is love. Well, that means the only way to know God is through love. We don't know God through fear or shame. Not really. We don't know God through unattainable standards of holiness or through doctrine well articulated and neatly defended. We only know God through love. And knowing God, well, that's Jesus' definition of eternal life. John chapter 17, verse 3, This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and the one you have sent. Well, that means that when we find ourselves in states of unlove towards others, or towards ourselves, or towards the world, we are moving away from the knowledge of God, away from a present experience of Jesus, away from that divine quality of life that Jesus called eternal. This is eternal life, that they may know you. It was a Jewish idiom to use the word know to imply that deepest kind of knowing, you know, the intimate knowing that happens between lovers. We know God by loving. 1 John 4, 20, if anyone says, I love God, yet hates his brother, he's a liar. For the person who does not love his brother, who he has seen, cannot love the God he has not seen. Well, see, that means it's our experience of love and our experience of loving others that helps us know God. It's our experience of love 
and our experience of loving others that helps us locate ourselves in the eternal kind of life. Jesus said so too. When Jesus was asked to boil down 39 sacred books containing 613 commands written and compiled and edited over a thousand years, when he was asked to boil all of that down, he said, Matthew chapter 22, verse 37, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the greatest and most important command. The second is like it. The second is its peer. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets depend on these two commands. All of it, Jesus said, depend on these two things. Now, the word translated depend in that sentence literally means to hang from. Picture it. All the law, all the prophets, all the sacred rules and stories, all of them are suspended, hanging, held up, transported like the basket of a hot air balloon from these two things. Love God with all you are and have, and love your neighbor as yourself. And these two things, they're just two different expressions, two different contexts, two different axes of just one thing. John chapter 13, verse 34, I give you a new command. Love one another. Just as I have loved you, you must also love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Now, of course, that brings up the question of love. I mean, there is a kind of love that's easy to feel. Right? The kind of love we have for people who love us the people who make us feel good about ourselves, the people who tell us that we're right and strong. There's also a kind of love that we give as a transaction, a payment in exchange for the deposit of behavior that we require or respect or consider appropriate. There's also a kind of automatic love that we have for people who are like us, you know, who look like us or talk like us or believe like us. But none of those are the kind of love that Jesus speaks of. He told us himself. Matthew chapter 5, verse 46. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Don't even the tax collectors do the same? Jesus said, this love, the kind of love that demonstrates the eternal kind of life, this love is a love for the one another's, a love for our neighbor's. And of course, that brings up the question, who is my neighbor? Jesus answered that question with a story that you've heard. An honest merchant taking his wares down the Jericho Road, waylaid by robbers left for dead in a ditch. A priest, the kind of guy who's known for being holy, was on his way to serve at the temple. He saw the ditch. He crossed over the road and walked by. A Levite, the kind of guy who's known for being right, was on his way to work. He saw the ditch. He crossed over the road and walked by. But then a Samaritan came down the road. A Samaritan! See, there weren't hospitals and nonprofits named after him yet. No, not yet, because his name really wasn't one that you'd associate with. You'd never put it over the door of your building. Walking down the Jericho Road, he probably was worried mostly about his own safety. After all, he was the hated racial minority. He was the one who worshipped the wrong God at the wrong temple using the wrong scripture. According to the people who paid attention to these things, he didn't obey or believe in the right way. But he saw the ditch and the guy in the ditch. 
and he didn't walk by. With this little story, Jesus told us that neighbor is a lot wider than we imagine, a lot wider than we prefer. Not just the people who live on either side of us with lives only slightly different from our own. In this story, Jesus expanded the circle, widened the neighborhood, suggesting that neighbor even includes the person we would be most likely to walk past if we saw them in a ditch. The person who's the wrong race, the person who's part of the wrong tribe, the group we look down on, the people we think are not as smart, the person who's not pure enough by our measure, the person we have no obligation toward who we'd really rather not dirty our fingers on. That person, the one who gets our stomach in a knot, the one we'd prefer walled off or walled away or walled across the border, the one who lives in ways we don't support, that one, that's our neighbor. At least according to Jesus, with the sharp needle of this parable, Jesus burst the bubble of polite Christianity, our tendency to mistake niceness for holiness. He turns our idea of glory upside down. In this story, and with his life, Jesus taught us that the divine kind of love will always manifest itself in real, experienced acts of service to those people the outside people, the in-the-ditch people, the people who should have known better, the people we all agree are the problem. Jesus tells us and then shows us what's God's love like. It's like bandaging up the oozing wound of an enemy in a ditch and then paying for his medical care. Or like sitting with a woman at the well in public, you know the one, the woman everyone's talking about, but taking her story seriously and compassionately. It's like touching the lepers, the ones everyone thinks are both contagious and, and under God's punishing curse. Or like standing between a woman accused of sexual crimes and the men accusing her. It's like eating with the wrong kinds of people and celebrating in the wrong kinds of ways. It's like providing wine for a wedding party without any lecture about the importance of responsible drinking. It's like asking a man who became wealthy through exploitation to redistribute his wealth to the poor. It's like turning the tables on the sacrifice merchants and the money changers and chasing them out of the temple because they had monetized access to God. It's even like quietly accepting death on the cross, trusting his reputation, his comfort, his very life to God, and the power of God's love to overcome evil. None of that is polite or nice or easy, and none of it feels like glory. But that is the kind of love that Jesus meant. That love is the exact imprint of God's nature and the radiance of God's glory. 1 John 3.16 By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. Do you see? This means we now know how to live in this new kind of kingdom. We know what brings God glory. This is the heart of following Jesus. This is how we know God. Not just know about God, stuff about God, but knowing God experientially. This is how we live in ongoing connection to God. 1 John 4, 16. 
and we have come to know and believe the love God has for us. God is love, and the one who remains in love remains in God, and God remains in him. And so we're back to where we started. 1 John 4, 8, God is love. And our confession as followers of Jesus, Colossians 2, 9, for in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. The love that is God's entire character is embodied, made flesh in the one that we worship. That love is our only remaining command. It's our ethic. It's our way. That love is our theophany, our experience of God. That love is what surrounds us, sustains us, and defines us. That love is the essential nature of God. And when we live out that kind of love, that is what brings God glory. Do you see? Do you see what this means? Anything in us that is not of love's kind is not of Christ. And anything in our church or the way we do church or how we hold our belief systems that is not of love's kind is not of Christ. Anything in our theology or our politics or our ministry plans that is not of love's kind is not of Christ. And anything in our personal posture or attitude or actions toward our neighbor that is not of love's kind is not of Christ. And so we pray for God's good and gentle judgment to burn away everything in us that is not of love's kind so that we can more fully know God, so that we can more fully live this love, so that we can walk with Jesus, loving God with all we are and have, and loving our neighbors as ourselves. By this Everyone will know that we are his disciples if we have love, love like his, for one another. I don't know rightly what label captures all of this. I don't even know any longer what tables I'm welcome at in Christianity and which ones I'm not. But I am certain that God's glory is found in Jesus' example of loving and being loved. And for me, that is the final word. Jude chapter 1, verse 25. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now and forever. May you be filled to the fullness with this incredible love, overflowing to every neighbor, even the ones in the ditch. And in so doing, bring glory to God. Thanks for listening. If you haven't already, subscribe to this podcast. That way you won't miss anything. You can subscribe on iTunes and in every other podcast app out there. You can also find a video version of this on my YouTube channel and subscribe there. And in any of those locations, I would be so grateful if you take a moment to rate or review this podcast. Particularly, write a short review, just a couple of sentences in Apple's podcast app, since that's one of the best ways to help other people decide if this podcast is worth their time. And of course, you'll find show notes for today's episode, including all the scriptures and the links that I just mentioned at www.markallenshelsky.com forward slash T-A-W-0-2-2. Until next time, 
Remember, in this one present moment, you are loved, you are known, and you are not alone.